It is so good to be back with you guys after a couple of weeks of uh, being down in Southern California where the weather's like 70. It is good to be back. It really is. It's good to be with you. Um, 70 would be nice, but hey, it's pretty. And fitting for the season, right? This is the season of Advent, uh, which means this is the time when we give focused attention on the birth of Jesus. And actually, we want all of our gatherings like this to be about Jesus, ultimately, because of who he is. He is the one who connects us to God. He is the one who rescues us from our sin, from death. He is the one who enables us to live a life of true purpose and meaning. And uh, as Ian said last week, I love this, Jesus is the hero of our story. So we want all of our gatherings as a church to be ultimately about Jesus. He is the one that life is ultimately all about. And the better we understand that, the more we know him, the more we trust him, the more we center our lives around him, the better it is for everybody. Um, So... We want everything to be about him, but this is the time of year when we give particular attention, focus on his birth, the fact that he was born, what that means for us, and our series for this Advent season is entitled The Birth of Hope, because one of the main reasons Jesus was born is to give us hope, and we need hope. We need hope. We need hope to live. We need hope to live well. We need hope to live the kind of life God intends for us, a life of peace and joy and true love. Um, we need to know that our future is good. That's really what hope is. It's knowing that our future is good. Knowing that Everything that's wrong will not stay wrong forever. Knowing that this messed up world will be fixed someday. And that somehow, any suffering, any pain we experience will someday be worth it. We need to know that. But how can we know that? How can we know that? We, you know, you and I cannot make a good future happen. We can give it our best shot, but we can't make it happen. Certainly not for sure, and certainly not forever. We're just not able to do that. In spite of our best efforts, uh, while I was in California, I was uh, visiting in a home where they had a, a book on World War One, and I was just kind of browsing through that. You know, when World War One happened, they didn't call it World War One because they didn't know there was going to be a World War Two. So they called it the Great War, or some called it the War to End All Wars, because that's what they were wanting. 
They wanted that, that because this war was just so awful, so horrible, so costly in terms of lost lives, that surely we, we would realize that war is just awful and, and we'll never do this again. And it was just 20 years later that the very same nations were involved in another brutal war, World War II. And there have been many wars since then. If anything is certain in this world, it's that humanity seems incapable of bringing about a good future and solving all of our biggest problems, mainly because our biggest problems are caused by us, by our selfishness, by our foolishness, by our greediness, and our pride. And, and it's been that way from the very beginning. Okay, but Jesus, Jesus was born to solve our biggest problems and give us hope. And that is, that's the reason we can have hope. And that's the thing we really want to grab onto in our passage for this series, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, it, it's really amazing. It, it's one of several promises that God made hundreds of years before Jesus was born to give people hope. It's a promise that one day God would send someone to rescue us from our messed up condition and give us a future that we could look forward to with joy. I don't know what you want for Christmas. Have you made your list? I don't know what you want for Christmas, but I do know what you need for Christmas and what I need. You need the hope that only Jesus can give us. So, we want to take a look at this promise, and let's just pray, and let's let God's promise fill up our hope tanks this morning. If your hope tank's feeling low, let's pray that God will use this promise to fill it up. In fact, let's pray right now. Father in heaven, this is just an amazing uh, promise you've given us. I pray, Lord, now you would give us hearts to hear it and appreciate it, and understand it, and embrace it, and believe it. Lord, give us the hope you want us to live with this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Isaiah 9-6, if you've got a Bible, you can flip it open there. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in the rack in front of you. You can also follow along on the sheet that's in your folder. Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah the prophet writes, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice our hope is wrapped up in a person. In this child who is born, in this son who is given. That is really the crucial thing to get in the Christmas message, or what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 
it's wrapped up in a person. We have to grasp this, okay? Believing the gospel, believing the message of Christmas, believing the good news does not mean simply agreeing with a statement of doctrine, a statement of belief. Believing the gospel does not mean performing certain rituals. Believing the gospel, being a Christian, does not mean keeping a Christian set of rules. That's not believing the gospel. Believing the gospel, believing God's good news, means putting your trust in a person. Entering into a relationship with a person. Coming to know a person. That is the main point of this promise in Isaiah. We can have hope because this person was born. That's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 1.1 that our hope is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who is our hope. He's our hope. He is. Our hope is a person. It's really important to get this. You know, people talk about Christianity as being one of the world's, you know, major religions. And then they compare the teachings of Christianity to the teachings of other major religions like Islam or Buddhism or um, Hinduism or something. And, you know, there's value in that because there are definitely significant differences of teaching. But that's not the main difference. The main difference is not Christianity's doctrines or its moral standards or its uh, values. The main difference is Christ himself, the person. Okay, who he is, what he did for us on the cross, what he does for us in our lives when we put our trust in him, what he will do for us in the future. So if you think you know what it means to be a Christian, and yet you do not know Christ as the person, you don't know him personally. I want you to know, there is a wonderful discovery God wants you to make. He wants you to come to know him personally through his son, Jesus Christ. The son who was given to us, the child who was born for us. So, to help us know and appreciate the person. That's what this is all about. This verse describes him for us by telling us his name. And as Ian pointed out last time, name here does not mean the label that we use to identify him. His name in that sense is Jesus. But name here means his identity, his character, um, the essence of who he is, every word in these four descriptions, okay? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every word here, every one of these descriptions is, is uh, intended to help us understand 
who Jesus really is, what he's really like. And every word is meant to give us hope. So last time we considered that Jesus is wonderful counselor. Okay, so unlike everybody else in the world that we might turn to for advice, Jesus always knows what's best. And the great thing is, he doesn't keep that information to himself. He doesn't say, yeah, well, I know what's best, but I'm not telling you. No, he willingly tells us and guides us. I mean, this book is full of his wisdom and guidance. We just need to ask him to lead us, and then we need to trust his wisdom, and we need to follow his directions. My mind gets boggled sometimes at the number of people who profess to be Christians, and yet they don't really seem to care about what Jesus has said, his guidance, and doing what he says. That's crazy. He's the wonderful counselor. We, we want him to guide us if we know what we're doing. So he's a wonderful counselor. Now today we want to unpack this second description of Messiah. It says he is, you ready for this? Mighty God. And suddenly we are confronted with a massive mystery. How can God be born? How can the mighty God become a child, a helpless infant? And here we come to one of the most amazing and controversial claims of Christianity, that Jesus Christ was and is both fully man and fully God that is fully human and fully divine, that within the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, who has always existed, who has always possessed all of the attributes of God, that just means whatever makes God, God, Jesus, the Son of God eternally had that, has always had that. But within the womb of Mary, This eternal Son of God took on humanity and became the God-man, Jesus. And He is the God-man now forever. And we celebrate this every Christmas when we sing carols like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you really looked at this, look at the second stanza. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. I love going to a place like the mall and hearing this play. You know, here's this just incredible truth being proclaimed. And people are, you know, fighting over Xboxes and stuff. <laughs> Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the incarnation. Okay? Incarnation means infleshing, the infleshing of God, God becoming flesh. And this is so important because this is why we say the gospel 
Okay, the heart of the gospel is not about humanity reaching up to God and aspiring, you know, to become better, to become good enough for God. We've got these great moral teachings, and so it's all about humanity just reaching up to God and and worshiping God and, you know, attaining God's approval. It's not that. The gospel is God reaching down to humanity and actually becoming one of us in order to make us good enough for God. By by living and dying in our place for our sin and rising from the dead to save us. That's the gospel. So this incarnation, God reaching down to us by becoming one of us. Okay. Is that really true? Or is that just kind of a, you know, hard-to-believe doctrine made up by some old guys, theologians, sitting around a table smoking too many pipes and letting their imaginations run away with them? Okay, so I want to deal with two questions raised by this title, Mighty God. Okay, here's the first. Does this passage and the rest of the Bible, does it really teach that Jesus is God? And the second question will be, what if it does? What difference does it make? But let's look at the first one. Does the Bible really teach that Jesus is God? Well, let's take a look. First, within this same book of Isaiah, okay, when Isaiah says, mighty God, who's he talking about? All right? Well, in the very next chapter, chapter 10, we're in Isaiah 9, okay, in the very next chapter, Isaiah predicts that a day will come when the people of Israel who had rebelled against God would repent, would return to him. Okay, look at chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down. That's talking about alliances that they had made with human kings who then turned on them and struck them down. They won't do that. But they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Same words as Isaiah 9, 6. So, look at it. Mighty God in verse 21 is referring to the one in verse 20 who is called the Lord. And when you see Lord in all caps like that, that's actually the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes mispronounced Jehovah. The Holy One of Israel. In other words, the one true God. Okay, Jeremiah 32, 18. The prophet prays these words. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great, and there it is, mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. Okay, this is important because there are people who will tell you that, well, no, I mean, Jesus... He's mighty God, but he's not all mighty God. So they want to say he's, he's 
God in a different sense, a lesser sense. He's merely a supernatural but created being, like Michael the archangel or something. That's not going to work. Because here and in other places, God the creator, Yahweh, Jehovah, is called Mighty God. And that's the same title that we have of the child in 9.6 of Isaiah. And someone says, wait, wait, that can't be true. It cannot be true. Because God cannot become man. I mean, that just can't happen. God is God, man is man, two different things. God can't become man. You know what the problem with that kind of thinking is? The problem is that's letting our limited human minds decide in advance what can be true and what can't be true. That's not letting the Bible speak for itself. See, here's the issue. The issue isn't whether we can understand it. The issue isn't whether we can grasp how Jesus could possibly be both God and man. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not that's what the Bible, the Word of God, actually teaches. Because if that's what it teaches, then it's true whether we can understand it or not. I actually think it's probably pretty cool that we can't fully understand God. Why would we think we could? I mean, how big is your brain anyway? It's not that big. All right, well, let's see what Jesus himself said and what those who actually knew Jesus personally, what they said about him, okay? You go into the New Testament, you find that there are three kinds of statements that teach that Jesus is God, all right? First kind of statement, statements where Jesus says things that only God can say. You had statements where Jesus said things that only God can say. All right, Matthew 24, 35. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Who can say that? If I said that, what would you do? Call 911. Leave. Don't come back. That's crazy. If it's not true, well, we can say that. God can say that. John eight fifty eight. Here Jesus is interacting with uh, his fiercest critics, the religious uh, leaders, teachers of the day. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, Abraham was born like 2,000 years before Jesus, okay? Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus there is quoting God when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. That's what Jesus is quoting, God's word. Before Abraham was, I am. And the, the Jewish people knew exactly what he was claiming because they picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. Because a, a, a mere man can't say that. Only God can say that. And then John twenty twenty eight. One of his apostles, Thomas, who wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the rest of them after the resurrection, uh, he does appear to Thomas, and Thomas says this. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, which a good Jewish boy would never say. 
to a mere man. Okay, well, maybe Thomas had it wrong. Let's see how Jesus replies. What does he say? Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believe what? That he's my Lord and my God. Jesus said things only God can say. Second kind of statements, Jesus did things only God can do. Matthew 8, 27, there's this raging storm. Jesus is out in a boat with his disciples. Things about ready to go under. And Jesus causes the storm to just stop with a word. And it says the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. John chapter 9. Jesus heals. He gives sight to a man who was blind from birth. Congenital blindness from birth. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, that man who was healed says this, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And then Luke chapter 5. Jesus is about to heal a paralyzed man to restore him to health. And before he heals him, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. That literally means freak out. Saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. And then third, you've got statements where Jesus is described in ways that only God can be described. Described in ways that only God can be described. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you've ever had anybody tell you that's not translated correctly, it should be translated, the Word was a God, that's wrong. That's incorrect. This is the correct translation. The word was God. And if you're a grammar geek who would like to know why, uh, come and talk to me later. I don't have time to get into it now. But that's, that's how it is supposed to be translated. The word was God. Then you get to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're used to coming into church and reading the Bible and, you know, having Advent services and all this, and you hear things like that, I hope you don't just go, oh, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing that God just knock us sideways. The Word became flesh. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, He, in the context here, is talking about the Son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the invisible God made visible. He's the firstborn over all creation. For, look at it, by him all things were created. If it's created, Jesus made it. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything 
he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Yes, the Bible really does teach that Jesus, the Messiah, the child who was born to us, the son who was given to us, is God, the creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. It really does. Well, so what? What difference does it make? It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. This means that Jesus can do whatever he chooses to do. He is mighty God. That means all of the strength of God is at his disposal. Well, how strong is that? That is stronger than the strongest army, stronger than the strongest human ruler, stronger than the most destructive typhoon or earthquake, stronger than the power of all the trillions of stars in all the trillions of galaxies in this entire universe. You think about how much power comes from one little star, our sun. And that is insignificant compared to the power of all the suns added all together. And he's more powerful than that. He's got more power than that because he made that. He's stronger than your most difficult situation. He's stronger than your worst enemy. He is stronger than all the demons of hell put together. That's why Christmas was the birth of hope. It's the birth of hope because he's got all the power he needs to do whatever he wants to do in your life. He has the power to accomplish all of his good purposes for you. And that is an incredibly hopeful thing to know. Jesus has the power to do whatever he wants to do in my life. He has the power to do whatever he wants to do in his life. Whatever he chooses to do, he has the power to do it. And now, let me just show you how awesome this is with just a couple of for instances here, okay? First, can Jesus really save you from your sin? Can he really save you from your sin? Can he really make you holy, so that you can stand in the very presence of God himself. Can he do that? Think about that. I mean, you know how messed up you are. Now, I take that back. You don't know how messed up you really are. Even if you really love Jesus, even if you just trust Him and you are striving to obey Him because you trust Him, you still have attitudes that you probably aren't even aware of, that are sinful. You don't even know. Can He really save you from your sin? 
I mean, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you, some days like me, you just see stuff coming out of you and you just think, am I never going to get any better? Can he really save you? Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Of course he can save you. He's God. And he's eternal. Well, what about this one? Can Jesus make everything in your life work out for your good? Everything in your life for your good. I'm not talking to you about just the good stuff, the nice things that happen to you. What about the awful things? What about the horrible things? What about the terrible things? Can he really work even those things out for your ultimate good, your ultimate joy, your ultimate glory? Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Of course he can do it. He can do it because he's God. He can do it, and he will do it, because he promised. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, and it pleases Jesus to do good to those who trust him. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. He's talking about his people, his sheep. That they might have life and have it abundantly. It pleases Jesus to do good to those who trust him. So how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this mighty God? Well, we should worship. We should worship. We should join our voices with the Apostle Thomas and say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Have you come to that place yet in your life? Have you come to the place yet where you realize that you do a terrible job of being God of your life? That you're not capable of being God of your life? That you trying to call the shots and run the show and decide what's good and what isn't doesn't work? And in fact, flagrantly offends the God of the universe. Have you come to the place where you finally just give that up and you come to Jesus and say, You are my Lord and my God? Worship. We should be amazed at the glory of Jesus. We should yield our entire lives to Him. There shouldn't be an aspect of our life that we don't yield to Him. You realize that's. That's what obedience is. Obedience is worship. Yield it to the Lord. Because He's God and you're not. We should worship. Second, we should rely. That means we should trust this one. Who is wonderful counselor and mighty God. That means He always knows what's best and He can always do what's best. Okay, so take a minute now and think. What is the biggest problem you're facing right now? What is it? 
What is the biggest problem? What is the thing that feels absolutely overwhelming to you? I know what it is for me. What is it for you? Give it over to Him. Trust Him with it. He will make it work for your ultimate good. Now, you may not see how until you see Him face to face. But when you see Him, you will see how and you will rejoice. Rely. And third, we should hope. We should hope. God became man. You know, every once in a while I just say things up here because they're true, because this book teaches it, and I say it, and I just think, that is just, that is an incredible thing to say. God became man for you, for me. For us, this child was born. For us, this son was given. For us, he lived. For us, he died. For us, he rose from the dead. For us, he's coming again. For us. He came to give you a future that you could look forward to with joy. Joyful expectation. So put your hope in him. Don't put it in anybody else. Don't put your hope in the government. Don't put your hope in the economy. Don't put your hope in your sweetheart. Don't put your hope in your children. Don't put your hope in anything but Jesus, mighty God. Let's pray. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I barely know where I'm at. Um, Jesus is mighty God. Have you come to the place where you're worshiping Him? Have you come to the place where you're learning to rely on Him? Have you come to the place where all of your hope is in Him? That's where we find the peace, the joy, the love, the hope to live and nowhere else. If you haven't come to that place yet, today could be the day. You could just say, okay, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of trying to be God of my life. It's wrong. It's a sin. I confess it. Lord, help me trust you as my Lord and my God, the one who came to save me. Lord Jesus, you are uh, beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension. But Lord, don't let our, our weakness and our inability to grasp it all keep us from worshiping and relying and hoping in you alone. God, mighty God, 
do what you would do in us and for us that you might be glorified and we might be satisfied. We pray in your holy name. Amen.